Great Fierce Storm. Inanna, emitting fearsomeness and radiance in battle. Inanna, playing in battle. Where Enlil has commanded it, you make a lion's body and lion's muscles rise up in the south and in the uplands. May the proud warrior of kings and queens restore you for the shrine Kesh. May he make them bow their noses to the ground for you. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest, Kira. And today we are listening to various hymns to the goddess Inanna. She was the Sumerian goddess of war, statecraft, and sexual love, and the patron deity of the city of Unug, or Uruk. Statecraft and sexual love is a real great combination. Right? It's like, happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> As usual, we're using the ETCSL translations. These myths state from the late 2000s and the early 1000s BCE. So here's the rest of that hymn that we opened with. My lady, you turn your gaze from the Abzu. You are gifted with divine powers like An the king. And like Enlil, you are established in a place of honor. You determine majestic verdicts in the assembly. Like a light from heaven within the assembly, you lead the righteous and seize the wicked. You lead forth the righteous in the palace for Utu. Enlil gave you your fierce face and your serious brow. At the beginning, it says, my lady, you turn your gaze from the Abzu. What's the Abzu? Yeah, so the Abzu is the Sumerian word for the fresh groundwater that's about two meters under the surface of the ground. Determining verdicts would be the archetypal peacetime job of a ruler, as we also see in episode two, when Ninurta is worried that Asag is stealing his job and deciding court cases himself. So next, we have a different hymn to Inanna. This one emphasizes her role in warfare, as well as her relevance to both men and women. There's a word but in there. It's not about buts, but there is a word but in there, and I'm quite excited to get to that point. <laughs> yes. When I travel by boat, when I, the queen, journey to the Abzu, when I enter the house of Enlil, I am indeed the queen who is preeminent in the mountains. When I stand before the face of Enlil, I am indeed the emanating light. When I stand in the mouth of the battle, I am indeed also the foremost one of all lands. When I stand in the thick of battle, I am indeed also the very guts of battle, the heroic strength. When I walk about at the rear of the battle, I am indeed also the flood. When I sit in the alehouse, I am a woman, and I am an exuberant young man. When I am present at a place of quarreling, I am a woman, a figurine brought to life. When I sit by the gate of the tavern, I am a prostitute familiar with the penis, the friend of a man, the girlfriend of a woman. I am milk of the god. I wonder what that is. I am preeminent in the mountains. <laughs> I am the milk of the god of Dumuzi. I am preeminent in the mountains. The mountains in my hands, the mountains at my feet, Elam in my hands. I have a pointed dagger in my belt. The gods are small birds, and I am the falcon. The Anuna gods butt each other, but I am the wild cow. I am the grandiloquent daughter of Enlil. I am the formidable one of my father Suen. I am the queen created by Nudimud. The life of the king, imbued with my awesomeness, filling throat and heart, imbued with my awesomeness, the most beautiful marsh reeds imbued with my awesomeness, the city which is restored, imbued with my awesomeness, the beauteous countenance, imbued with my awesomeness, on its full lips, imbued with my awesomeness. 
So Dumuzid is Anana's lover. Suen is the moon god Sin, also called Nana, the patron god of Ur. And Nudimud is another name for Enki. And the Anuna gods are the Anunnaki for episode one. Okay, and those were all mentioned in the last poem. Right. And Enlil is like the father god or something? Like he gave Inanna her powers? Enlil is interesting, actually. He's the god of kingship. It's like the easiest way to like describe okay. him. But he's the patron god of Nippur, which was kind of chosen as a neutral state. Because like, you know, when all the kings of various you know city-states were battling for preeminence, they needed kind of like a neutral referee city mm -hmm. to be the like religious home of the League of Cities, but not in itself a political hegemon. Right. So Nippur was the city of Enlil, and Enlil was the god of kingship that awarded, you know, divine kingship to whichever king was already the most politically powerful. That yeah. makes sense. So let's hear another hymn to Inanna. My father gave me the heavens, and he gave me the earth. I am Inanna, which god compares with me? Enlil gave me the heavens, and he gave me the earth. I am Inanna. He gave me lordship, and he gave me queenship. He gave me battles, and he gave me fighting. He gave me the storm wind, and he gave me the dust cloud. He placed the heavens on my head as a crown. He put the earth at my feet as sandals. He put the holy scepter in my hand. The gods are small birds, but I am the falcon. The Anuna mill about, but I am the good wild cow. I am the good wild cow of Father Enlil, his good wild cow which walks in front. When I enter the Ikur, the house of Enlil, the gatekeeper does not lift his hand against my breast. The minister does not tell me, rise. The heavens are mine, and the earth is mine. I am heroic. In Unug, the Enana is mine. In Nippur, the Dur-An-Ki is mine. In Ur, the E-Dilmuna is mine. In Girsu, the Esh... Oh, gosh. The Eshdam-Kug is mine. In Kish, the Hursang-Kalama is mine. In Uma... The Ibgal is mine. In Agade, the Ilmash is mine. Which god compares with me? So a couple things to point out is that in Ur, her temple is the A Dilmuna, which is literally the house of Dilmun. And Dilmun is the Sumerian name for like Bahrain, you know, probably a kingdom or nation or whatever you want to call it. Okay, so what I'm reading is like the letter E and then a dash and then something so that it's pronounced A and it mm -hmm. means... House of. House of. A... Yeah is house of yeah so okay. the ayana is the house of heaven the adilmuna is the house of Dilmun. and then kish the hursan kalama is sumerian for the mountain of the land of sumer kalam is as near as we can tell the like proper noun for the land of sumer in sumerian sumerian is from sumer true haha -ha. <laughs> i know that yeah and it's frustrating because sumer is actually the akkadian name for sumer oh <laughs> so it's, it's you know it's this whole thing unlike in episode seven enlil not enki gives her the maze what's the maze so yeah a may is one of those like untranslatable concepts that is kind of like every cultural good. It's like, you know, every piece of technology, like the art of farming, the art of various crafts. One of them's like, I give you a uh, lovemaking and the art of the kissing of the phallus and so on. Mm. So yeah, just like things that are good for a civilization to have in episode seven. And not an Enki got drunk. Enki gifted oh, yeah, I remember all... that. Oh, that's right. So obviously we have some more cattle metaphors because everyone loves their cattle. Um... Oh. So we'll listen to some more hymns later. For now, we're going to see Inanna's patron settlement, the town of Unug, grow into one of the first city-states in history, situated in the first widespread urban society in history. After which, we'll hear more hymns to Inanna. This episode will be about the late Uruk state. So in southern Mesopotamia, during the late Uruk period, or about 3400 to 3100 BCE, all the ingredients of a city-state were in place. 
We have tens of thousands of people living in the same settlement. We have a central administrative authority with several layers of bureaucracy. It has the power to collect grain and other resources from the entire society, and the ability to turn that grain into labor projects, canals, buildings, walls, and military service. These state institutions, which I'll be calling temples, might be led by a single ruler. In art, we see a single important-looking man. He's similar to later depictions of Mesopotamian kings. This figure during the Uruk is often called a quote-unquote priest-king, but there's no evidence that he was a priest or a king. His title in Sumerian might have been either En or Namesh Da, both of which we'll talk about. So basically, these central organs of the state are these formal bureaucratic institutions, which again, I'll be calling temples. These are large bureaucracies owning property and land, livestock, and slaves, and they are the centers of political power and ideology and religion in these new city-states. So bureaucracy is a modern byword for inefficiency, but it is actually the most efficient way for one group of people to do lots of different things. That way you don't have to figure out whose job it is to do which task. You know, this bureaucracy controls land and labor, which it uses to produce and collect food, which it uses to feed its laborers. And increasingly, the need to keep records of the inflow and outflow of goods will lead to the invention of writing. We'll talk about that next episode. So all of this is made possible by an army of manual laborers, probably a combination of slaves and seasonal peasant workers. All of these workers and dependents were fed by an institutional ration system. And this entire economic system was undergirded by a massive amount of violence. So let's look at the state from the top down, starting with the possible ruler. As I mentioned, there is a new type of guy who commonly appears in Uruk period art. He's wearing a beard. He has his hair in a bun. He's wearing a brimmed hat and a long kilt with no shirt. He is often called a priest king, but like I said, there's no firm evidence that he is either a priest or a king. This may be an outgrowth of the Susa one period ritual leader, which we talked about, the guy depicted dancing on stamp seals with snakes. This figure is common during the Middle Uruk in both the Mesopotamian Alluvium and in Susiana. He appears throughout the late Uruk and into the early dynastic period, so into the 2000s. A similar figure appears on the knife from Jebel el Arak in Egypt. We talked about that in the late Uruk Iran episode. And the context around him always emphasizes his importance. He's often featured in processions and meeting with a female figure who might be Inanna or who might be a priestess. He's commonly featured in the Master of the Beasts motif. This is where one human is fighting two different wild animals. This was also common since the Susa I period and spread into Mesopotamia during the Middle Uruk period. And this figure is also involved in war. So in 2004, Daniel Potts wrote that in Unug, quote, he appears in front of a number of captives who are apparently being beaten or driven forward by guards armed with short whips. The priest king stands before them with a spear, point down in the earth, end quote. This figure is also found in Susa, quote, aiming an arrow at opponents, some of whom he has shot, and some of whom are consequently shown falling off the roof of a two-tiered building, end quote. So this figure may have had a military role, or this military imagery might be symbolic. The most common interpretation is that this is some kind of human leader, maybe a king of the city-state, maybe the head official in the temple bureaucracy, maybe a military leader, and maybe some combination of these. But there's no definite proof that this represents a specific human role. He could be any number of other things. He might be an abstract ideal. In other words, he might not represent a particular person or human office, but instead, the concept of good kingship or leadership. Remember, we're missing out on a huge amount of symbolism and cultural context. He might also represent a god. So in this conception, he would be important in art because he's the god they worship. Later on, we see gods like Nenurta, Marduk, and Ashur, all depicted as warriors fighting monsters, which would explain the Master of the Beasts motif. These kinds of warrior gods also lead their armies to victory, which would explain the battle imagery. But all of these also correspond with iconography of later kings, especially the Walker Vases scene of him offering to a goddess, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So like I said, the consensus is that he was some type of human leader, possibly the ruler of the city-state and or the temple bureaucracy, hence priest and or king. So that Walker Vase that I just mentioned is a one meter tall carved alabaster vessel divided into four registers. The bottom two depict grain and sheep and goats. In the second register from the top, we see naked men carrying vessels, which probably represent primary producers, you know, farmers bringing tribute to the temple. And on the top register, we see a goddess receiving goods from a man. These goods include alabaster vases, metal ingots, and so on. And the proto-cuneiform sign for N is depicted near the male figure. It's notable that the male figure and the female figure are about the same height. 
it's generally accepted that this man is the Sumerian N, that is a Sumerian word meaning Lord, to quote Thorkald Jakobsen, quote, the traditional English rendering Lord for the title N would be happier if it had preserved overtones of its original meaning, breadkeeper or Hlafard, for the core concept of N is that of the successful economic manager, end quote. So in Uruk period texts, there's not one guy named N. N is a generic term for Lord or leader, and there are many different people titled N in the records. In 2020, Gebhardt Seltz wrote that this implies that Uruk society was probably not a monarchy because there were many different leadership roles and that this guy depicted on the Walker vase could be just an A leadership role and not the very top leadership role. There were probably many different centers of power and authority. Alternately, this guy might be titled Namesh Da. So Namesh Da is a combination of three signs, Nam, Esh, and Da. And this title appears already in the earliest Uruk texts. Based on later periods, this might be read Nam Gishita, which means Lord of the Mace, or Scepter, you know, the symbol of authority that we've been talking about. In the Lutu A list, a lexical list, which we'll talk about next episode, the first entry is Namesh Da, which might indicate that this is the title of the most important temple official, this text in general being a list of bureaucratic titles. We'll talk about that next episode. In a much later lexical text, the word Namesh Da is translated into Akkadian as Sharu, which means king. Sharu, of course, is the element in Sharukin, or Sargon, the one true king. That doesn't necessarily prove anything about the Uruk period, though, because this is like a thousand years earlier. But the title Namashda is still used at Ur. We see it in archaic texts around 2700 BCE. Here, he might be the head of the City League, which I alluded to back in the last Uruk expansion episode. Like I said, the same figure appears both in the Mesopotamian Alluvium and in Susiana at Susa and Chogamish. This makes sense because this motif originated in Susiana. Assuming this represents a real person, is this a leader of Anug who is also in charge of Susiana? Is he a local leader of Susa, but subordinate to the powers that be in Unug? Or is he an independent leader of Susa, using the same visual style as leaders in Unug? The academic consensus is that there almost certainly wasn't a unified kingdom, including both Southern Mesopotamia and Susiana, and certainly not one, including the rest of the Uruk expansion, Habub, Kabira, and so on. So whatever relationship these cities had to each other, it wasn't one of total subordination. So in other words, most likely he is an independent leader of Susa, using the same visual style as that at Unug, but it's notable in itself that they used the same iconography. Remember, we talked about the fact that during the Middle Uruk, probably a huge amount of migration from Mesopotamia into Susiana resulted in a kind of shared culture in both southwestern Iran and southern Mesopotamia. And then from there, that culture spread to other parts of the Near East, including as far as Egypt. So moving down from the leader and looking at the bureaucracy, you know, we spent a long time talking about public buildings in the Ubaid period. These are tripartite house-style buildings responsible for grain storage, ritual activity, and administrative activity. We talked about how these were originally patterned after houses, you know, same floor design as houses, but bigger, probably conceived of as the household of a god. We can think of a god as an ideological construct and ritual as a way for a community to build a relationship with that construct. The combination of ideology and ritual are a way to legitimize administration. These temples are serving a political economic role of accumulating and distributing grain according to their own uses. Because this access to those resources is necessarily unequal, and they need some kind of ideological way to justify that. Which, of course, explains the existence of Mesopotamian mythology. Of course, the text we have written down, although they were produced in the temples by temple scribes for the glorification of the god represented by the temple, you know, Sumerian mythology is not the beginning of all mythology. Every human society has some kind of cosmology and folklore, but in the written versions of Mesopotamian mythology that we have, it lavishes particular praise on particular gods because the more legitimate that god is seen as, the more control that temple has over both agriculture and labor. Already at the end of the late Uruk period, we have the divine classifier An, or Dingir, used to mark deities. It looks like an asterisk or an eight-pointed star. In 13 Uruk texts, the sign combination An-Mush is used to write the name of the goddess Inanna. She is the patron goddess of the Ayana temple complex, and she's associated with the planet Venus. Gebhardt Seltz, in a 2020 article, identifies two aspects of Inanna that correspond to the two positions of Venus in the sky. Inanna Nun is Inanna High in the sky, and Inanna Kur represents, quote, her invisibility during her movement through the netherworld, end quote. This may have something to do with the much later myth where Inanna descends to the underworld to meet her sister, Eresh Kigal. 
So every state needs a way to keep an inventory, you know, needs a way to record the goods it's already acquired and the goods that it could potentially acquire in terms of land, labor, livestock, produce, and natural resources. This kind of record keeping doesn't have to be writing. We've covered lots of non-writing record keeping systems. We can also look at the Inca Kipu system, which was a way of tying knots and string to keep records. We can talk about writing next episode, but essentially during the early Neolithic, the earliest stage of record keeping were clay tokens that were exchanged to represent particular transactions. The next phase were clay balls with tokens inside so that you only had to carry one thing and not several and you could impress the outside of the clay ball with some kind of information about what's happening inside. During the next phase, these clay balls were flattened into cakes, which made them easier to stack and to store long-term. In the next phase were numerical tablets, which are basically just numbers without any kind of information about what those numbers represent. And then the final stage before writing is combining those numbers with pictographic signs, where you, know, you have a quantity of a thing, and then it tells you what thing is being counted. So the number 10 next to a bull's head will represent 10 head of cattle. And essentially at that point, they have invented writing. Again, we'll talk about that next episode. Anyway, all of this represents increasing information density. Now you have more data available to the administrative hierarchy. Already during the Ubaid period, we see specific people stamp seals attached to specific sealed objects, which are a way of identifying that transaction with a particular person. Later on, we will see a specific official's name or title attached to that record. So instead of that official stamping the clay with their seal, they might stamp the clay with their seal and then write in text on the tablet, you know, so-and-so was responsible for this transaction. Now this is an extra layer of accountability so that when someone is auditing these records, you can see who is responsible for what, and if there are any discrepancies, you can ask them. So essentially, these archaic texts are buried in batches. So it looks like after they were used, they might have been sorted by category, and then they were audited. These individual records were checked against summaries of transactions made by other scribes. If it all added up, then they would be systematically discarded, which is why we often see huge batches of tablets discarded all at once, instead of piece by piece as they're used. So one of the primary features of early bureaucracies is hierarchy, in the sense that everyone has a boss and a specific job. The forerunners of statehood are fragile, so if everyone has one person they take orders from, and ultimately all of that authority is concentrated on a single person, that person can be an anchor for what is essentially an unprecedented social organization. And when you have a small number of people that specialize in a certain sphere of decision-making, that gives their institution a lot of control over the rest of the organized bureaucracy. In 2005, Giorgio Bucciolati wrote, quote, Delegation of authority was developed to a high formal degree so that rank could both correspond to an explicit, specific, and recognizable level of manpower and prevent personal presumptions beyond the assigned level, end quote. So in other words, you as an individual have a specific job. You as an individual focus on your own job and not on other people's jobs. You have no need to personally know your higher-ups beyond your boss or workers farther down the chain. You know, your particular boss is your link to the centralized authority. And it's the leadership's job to organize work on a large scale. So each individual worker, especially farther down the chain, is interchangeable, fungible, if you will, and rations can be allocated ahead of time because everyone gets the same amount. So if you figure that it'll take 100 people to dig out this canal, you can allocate 100 people's worth of rations. And if three people get sick on that day, you can find three other workers and swap them out. Either way, look at the same number of rations. And whoever's job it was to do the math and allocate that grain ahead of time did their job and did not have to worry about the exact personnel involved. So, you know, most people in this system have no view of the grand plan, except those at the very top. And you need some way to get these workers on board, which is the point of propaganda. In other words, public declarations of royal and or divine power. This is a kind of idealized, simplified form of the grand plan for society. You're going to need this kind of propaganda to explain away the fact that the state is an additional burden on a fragile situation. In order to be able to collect tax and tribute, you need a surplus to exist in the first place. And, you know, when times are tough, during drought, the people growing grain to fill your coffers might resent the fact that their grain is going to feed a white-collar professional who himself does not grow any grain. 
So this might explain the prevalence of the one single king motif, because in a situation where the vast majority of society hates the bureaucracy, a single charismatic leader might be able to set themselves up as the champion of the common people against the forces of commoditization and dehumanization. You know, essentially, the king is their figurehead against the faceless bureaucracy. In much later periods, we will see kings describe themselves as fair judges and father figures and good shepherds, in essence fighting back against the same historical process that created the basis for their kingship in the first place. So earlier, I mentioned the Lutu A list. This is a lexical text, which means it was copied in schools that taught scribes how to write in cuneiform. This is the most common lexical text from the Uruk period, with 185 total examples. Lu Tu is the sign for person, so essentially this might be an Uruk period org chart with a list of about 140 titles. The sign combinations in this list are common from Uruk archaic texts and unknown from the early dynastic period. So what this probably means is that these were titles used during the Uruk period and used in this kind of formalized list to teach people how to write those titles. But during political reorganizations after 3100, these titles became obsolete, but scribes kept learning how to write them because they were learning from kind of a fixed scribal canon that was first established during the Uruk period. Some of the common signs used in this list include the sign Gal, meaning great. Lu Gal is literally great man or king. And then the sign Nam represents leadership. I mentioned earlier that Namesh Da might mean lord of the mace. So the first nine entries after Namesh Da which probably represent the next nine highest ranks, are all written with the number one and then a two ideogram title. In other words, the sign for the number one and then two different signs. So we can't know details about these jobs. We can't even translate all of the titles. Some have suggested that some of them translate to leader of the city, leader of the plow, great one of the cattle plan, great one of the lambs, and so on. But there's no way to be sure. Then the farther you go down the list, the more you get to kind of middle managers, supervisors, and so on. The text doesn't seem to mention low-ranking laborers. In other words, the low-level manual laborers from administrative texts. So essentially, the historical process going on here, to quote a 2017 article by Susan Pollack, was precipitated when, quote, an elite class increasingly appropriated for its own benefit the potentials of repetitive labor in order to promote a diversity of products that could be used as expressions as well as mechanisms of control and repression, end quote. So essentially, the larger these bureaucracies get, the more labor they can control, and the more they can use that labor to reify and magnify their own power. So I've mentioned cylinder seals a lot without actually defining them. In general, a seal is a carved object that presses a unique image into clay, like a signature. One person's unique seal impression on a bit of clay sealing up a jar or something is proof that they specifically approved the sealing and transport of the jar. So during the Ubaid, we saw stamp seals, which were small and round. These are pressed once into wet clay, preserving a single negative image of the design carved in the seal itself. The design was generally engraved in the negative, and they're generally made out of stone. Whereas cylinder seals, which were invented in Telbrock, are shaped and used more like a paint roller or like a rolling pin, in the sense that they can roll a continuous image onto clay. So instead of a single round impression, you can have a stripe of a continuous scene that goes all the way across the tablet. Cylinder seals are common starting in the Middle Uruk period. They're mostly made of stone, but they can also be made of shell, clay, and metal, often with a bitumen core. Early on, we see a wide range of shapes and sizes, but their dimensions get standardized over time. So this has a variety of uses. You can use it like a key. In other words, you can press it into the clay, sealing a storage door in order to quote-unquote lock that door. So essentially, everyone who walks by that door will see that the door is closed and has been sealed by your seal, so they know you were the last person to close that door and officially seal it. Any other official who opens that door and breaks your seal will do whatever they need to do with that door, and then when they're done, they'll close the door again, they'll reseal it with clay, and then press their cylinder seal into that clay. So anytime you see an intact seal impression, you know that no one has broken into that room, or they would have had to break the clay seal and thus undo the point of sealing it in the first place. You could use your seal like a signature, so essentially you impress it into the tablets you're using. When someone is auditing your tablets, you know, your boss can review your transactions and then approve them themselves by also pressing their cylinder seal into your clay. The more sealings we have on a tablet, the more levels of bureaucracy there probably are approving a singular transaction. And you can also use your seal as an ID card, because again, every seal is unique and you're wearing it on your person probably at all times. 
There's a huge diversity of images. No two seals are identical, but they have broad patterns of similarity. The most common type is a simple geometric pattern, which are probably easier to make and therefore quote unquote cheaper to produce. But we also have more complicated scenes on seals. These are probably owned by elites. These more complicated scenes include heraldic style animals, so no griffins, lions, and intertwined snakes. For example, we see the Lord of Snakes at Susa, as well as processions of prisoners. Often in cylinder seal art, we have depictions of economic labor, like agricultural labor and storage, transporting commodities, herding sheep and cattle, and processing wool and dairy, all of which undergirds the entire economic system. So it makes sense that they would want to highlight that in their iconography, especially if the person wielding the cylinder seal is himself responsible for overseeing that kind of production. Especially common on these seals are women's work, so spinning, weaving, and making pottery. Speaking of which, the most important part of the state was the vast army of manual laborers that it commanded. Some of these were probably enslaved, others were probably seasonal peasant workers. By the way, they were put to use, digging out canals, building buildings and walls, maybe serving the military, definitely making pottery, weaving, things like that. In 2005, Giorgio Bucciolati defined industrialization as, quote, the segmentation of the procurement, production, and marketing of goods, end quote. In other words, assembly line production. Each person does a different step of the process over and over instead of one person doing every step of the process and then starting over. There are two major side effects of industrialization. Number one, as we've been talking about, is that no single segment controls the entire process. In other words, power is in the hands of bureaucrats who oversee different segments. These bureaucrats control various coercive mechanisms, which give them a huge opportunity to accumulate power and wealth, either for themselves or for the institution they work for. And the other side effect is that any particular individual is easily replaced. Their skills are limited to that segment and easily taught via repetition to someone else, which makes their personal role less unique. And now there's no need to understand how the entire system works. So now production can be planned in advance. Now, bureaucrats have control over labor and resources, both now and in the future. In other words, they don't only need to plan for the projects that they can support with the current amount of grain they have. They can also look forward to next harvest and factor that grain into their equations. This allows them to invest, in other words, to allocate resources with the goal of acquiring more resources later. Both during the Uruk period and later, the main goal is not profit, again, no money. The main goal here is the continued hegemony of the institutions. So in other words, it doesn't really matter what they spend as long as they are able to continue being powerful in the present and in the future. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about infrastructure projects, but this also applies to craft production, you know, ceramics, metallurgy, stoneworking, and so on. Over time, the temple incorporates more and more of these types of specialized crafts into their own production networks. Obviously ceramics, because it needs ceramics to carry around some of the other stuff that it's producing. So most art, as we would think of it, is produced by and for elite institutions. So, you know, cylinder seals are literally commissioned by elites as propaganda. Similarly, with monumental art, like temples and palaces, whatever kind of aesthetic dimension these wall cones and clay horns and so on, wall niches, have, it's all towards the aim of impressing individual people with the splendor and grandeur of the temple itself. So, state power is legitimated by the implicit threat of violence. In other words, the state has the power to injure and or kill you if you don't do what it wants, but this power is only ever used for exceptions. In 2005, Butrilati wrote, quote, Power is truly articulated through institutions, not necessarily enforced through physical constraint, end quote. So in other words, the state obviously wouldn't kill every single one of its workers to make a point because there'd be no one left to make a point to, but it's not above executing one particular person, to set an example. To take a quick look at external violence, we don't know exactly how enlistment works, but given all the evidence for slavery and mass labor mobilization and fortification walls, which were built more and more during the late Uruk period, combined with city destructions, for example, those at Brock and Tel Hamukar, it's not hard to imagine some kind of military draft you know, in other words, farmers during the off-season and the summer, the state pays them a certain amount of grain to go and try to sack a city. Wars, of course, are expensive. We need lots of grain to feed lots of soldiers. You know, obviously, it's useful to have a huge amount of grain and lots of young, strong men on hand in case of invasion. You know, external aggression is not really worth it unless the state stands to gain somehow, which, of course, it could take in plunder, it could take in captive labor, it could set favorable trade terms with that conquered city, and so on. And we also talked about how the quote-unquote priest king is connected to warfare, 
you know, a lot of images show him fighting in battles, often at the front and 10 feet tall. This might indicate that the state associated with this quote-unquote priest king fought a lot of wars. It's hard to imagine a state society without war. Again, we don't have a super clear picture on what warfare looked like during the Uruk period, but we do know that later on, war between great Bronze Age powers was fairly rare. More often, these great powers would fight against weaker neighbors in order to forcibly integrate new people into the state, either as imported laborers, slaves, or as members of client communities. You know, you don't need to enslave everyone as long as you can ensure access to other people's resources, whether that's through a treaty or whether that's by burning down the city and taking everything in it, whatever works. We can think of Uruk colonization as the domestication of peripheral people. What had been self-sufficient communities are now supervised labor, producing goods for the state itself. You know, the state doesn't have to literally control the reproduction of everyone in its economy, like you do for literal animal domestication, but it does have extensive control over every type of production, up to and including the ability to remove subjects from their homes and their traditional ways of life and enslave them in Unug itself or some other large city. So the result, as we see in archaic texts, are a list of stuff, mostly barley and dependent workers, who you have to feed that barley to. When you have a whole lot of labor, you can grow food to feed more people. You can put those people to work on your farm and they can grow a whole lot more food. And now you have enough food to launch a military campaign and capture more people and so on and so on. During this period, warfare is mostly about capturing and subjugating people for various kinds of manual labor. We don't see that much interest in territorial expansion as such. So, you know, most scholars agree that Unug is not sending out an army to conquer Telbrak and add it to the realm of Unug per se. But Unug can impose a certain kind of political order or economic agreement or whatever on Telbrak once it's sacked it. So to look at slavery, we have no way to be sure how old slavery is. It appears in all types of societies, not just state societies, but it's generally invisible in the archaeological record. The most common non-numerical sign combination in archaic texts is Sal Kur. You'll often hear that Sal means woman, Kur means mountain. So Sal Kur means mountain woman or female slave of foreign origin. But in 2009, Robert K. England wrote that instead this just means male and female slaves. So Sal means woman and Kur means man or male. So there's a number and then Sal Kur means this is the total number of male and female slaves combined. This is the same way they write totals of animals as we'll look at. The single sign Sal, meaning female slave, is the second most common single sign after barley. And the pictograph itself is a pubic triangle, you know, emphasizing the reproductive aspect of female slaves. I'm sure you can connect some dots. Slaves will be a huge aspect of the later Sumerian economy. One of the largest slaveholding institutions will be these massive textile workhouses. In 3000 BCE, these textile workhouses may have employed as many as 9,000 women in Unug, which would be about one-fifth of the total population of the city. Temples also owned slaves. It's not clear exactly what the relationship between these temples and these textile workhouses was. But either way, you know, women are absolutely put to work doing productive labor. It's no surprise that Uruk slaves were not treated great. They're often depicted with neck collars. As I mentioned, state iconography often shows the quote of a priest king trampling prisoners of war. Cylinder seals show a ruler watching as slaves get beaten with clubs. And in later periods, we have reference to intentional blinding. We don't have any detailed records on death, but we do know the slave population didn't reproduce itself. In lists of prisoners, many are listed as dead, maybe from a forced march, maybe from overwork or malnutrition or disease. But either way, same with the textile workhouses. We have lots of deaths, but no listed cause. So we have lots of lists of slaves. They're generally recorded as commodities. But the great irony here is that we have more names of slaves than we do names of officials. Because officials are often identified by their job title. In other words, not their personal name. Or their cylinder seal, which is a picture, but not a name. So often we don't have the personal name of an official on a document, but we do have documents with hundreds of slaves' names written down. So looking at these names, the most common sign used to write these names is N, or leader, or lord. We talked about that. The next most common is Bu, which is a pictograph of a snake with an unclear meaning. One major difference from Sumerian names here is that there are no theophoric elements. In other words, there's no evidence that any of these names refer to any particular gods that we know of. Even when we can't identify elements of names, they are not always 100% legible in Sumerian, and there's no overlap with Sumerian women's names, all of which probably indicates that these names being recorded are not in the Sumerian language. 
The sign for labor doesn't appear until after 2500 BCE. It's hard to depict in pictograms, but the Sumerian word is ah, meaning arm or strength. But we do know that manual labor was a central part of Uruk life, and the amount of labor that could be expected from a group of slaves was approximated by their age and sex, so just the scribes could do the math to find out the area of a field and then estimate how much grain they could expect from it. They could do the same kind of math with age and sex of slaves and figure out how much work they could expect from them. The number of slaves identified in texts gets larger over time. During the penultimate phase of the late Uruk, we have 58 slaves identified in records. And during the very last phase, that's the Uruk 4a period, we have over 230 slaves identified in records. Returning to hymns to Inanna, a lot of them are explicitly sexual, referring to the consummation of the marriage between Inanna and her lover Dumuzid. These are similar to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon from the Hebrew Bible. We will get to those eventually. Oh, Dumuzid is like her lover boy, right? Mm -hmm. Like her boyfriend, her lover. True boy toy. Boy toy. B-O-I-T-O-I. But he's a god, though. I mean, he's not just Mm -hmm. a regular old person. Yeah, so he is a god. He shows up twice in the Sumerian king list as two separate kind of legendary kings from the distant past. One of them is in the same dynasty as Gilgamesh. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, so he is a god, but he doesn't really have a mythology that's separate from Inanna. He fulfills the archetypal role of the suitor, and then they you know, hook up and get married and then consummate their marriage. And that's, well, <laughs> there's another aspect of the story where essentially she escapes the underworld, but has to offer a soul to the goddess of the underworld in her place, and she picks him. Oh, no. Um, so he gets dragged down to the underworld every six months in a Persephone kind of deal. Like, that's like a backwards Orpheus. Uh, yes, also that. Right? No, it's, it, yeah, it's both. It's, yeah, you know, because he's a fertility god, and, you know, he has to be away from the world during the winter for the same reason that Persephone does. So he's interesting. He's, he's very interesting. It's just that, you know, he doesn't really have his own story separate from Inanna. So here are some implicitly sexual hymns from Inanna's point of view. To clarify, the terms brother and sister don't refer to family members. Here they are terms for addressing a social equal. So let's hear one hymn celebrating Inanna's marriage to Dumuzid. The narrator here is either Inanna and or her family. The burgeoning one, the one with kindly eyes, takes counsel with his father. You are our brother in charge of the palace gate. You are our captain of the barge. You are our commander of the chariot. You are our servant of the hunting chariot. You are our city father and judge. You are the son-in-law of five things, the son-in-law of ten things. Brother, you are the son-in-law of our father. Our mother speaks favorably with you. Your coming here is life indeed. Your entering the house is abundance. Lying at your side is my utmost joy. My sweet, let us delight ourselves on the bed. So here's another hymn describing the kind of archetypal adolescent courtship. Ushungal Anna is another name for Dumuzi. While I, the lady, was passing the day yesterday, while I, Inanna, was passing the day yesterday, while I was passing the day, while I was dancing, while I was singing songs all day until evening, he met me, he met me. The Lord, the friend of An, met me. The Lord took me in his hands. Usumgal Anna embraced me about my neck. So Inanna says, Let me go so that I can go to our house. Friend of Enlil, let me go so that I can go to our house. What lie can I offer to my mother? What lie can I offer to my mother in Ingal? So here the woman initially refuses, which is archetypal in the Sumerian courtship narratives. Of course, in a modern interpretation, this makes Dumuzid's behavior creepy, let it snow vibes, but it probably would have originally been interpreted as Inanna's obligation to modesty at first. For what it's worth, in the more explicit poetry, she enthusiastically consents for stanzas upon stanzas. So Dumuzid replies and tells her what to say. Let me teach you, let me teach you. Inanna, let me teach you the lies of women. 
My girlfriend was dancing with me in the square. She ran around playfully with me, banging on the drum. She sang her sweet songs for me. I passed the day there with her in pleasure and delight. <laughs> Offer this as a lie to your own mother. As for us, let me make love with you by moonlight. Let me loosen your hair grip on the holy and luxuriant couch. May you pass a sweet day there with me in voluptuous pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very good time reading that. <laughs> so the text here was damaged, but later Dumazid comes to visit Inanna at her parents' house, and Inanna says, There he is, standing at our mother's gate, while I am rushing around in excitement. There he is, at Ningal's gate, while I am rushing around in excitement. Oath that someone would tell my mother, my lord is perfect for the holy embrace. Ama Osumgal Anna, the son-in-law of Suen, Lord Dumuzid, is perfect for the holy embrace. My lord, how pleasing is your lavishness, and how sweet-tasting are your green plants from the plain. So, let's hear one last hymn. This one is called The Song of the Lettuce. Continuing the plant theme, it's worth pointing out that the species of lettuce referred to both in these hymns and in the Egyptian hymns about Seth are taller and they have a milky white sap. So that is what they're referring to. If you're more familiar with lettuce and salad that does not have a milky white sap. Okay, this last one is the one I am most excited about reading. I am so happy to have the opportunity to read this piece of art. Here we go. He has sprouted. He has burgeoned. He is well-watered lettuce. My shaded garden of the desert, richly flourishing, his mother's favorite. My grain, lovely in beauty in its furrows, he is well-watered lettuce. My first-class fruitful apple tree, he is well-watered lettuce. The honeyman, the honeyman will make me sweet. My lord, the honeyman of a goddess, his mother's favorite, whose hands are honey, whose feet are honey, will make me sweet whose limbs are honey-sweet, will make me sweet. Navel, my altogether immediately sweet, my favorite of his mother. Beautiful thighs, raised arms. He is well-watered lettuce. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love this one. Okay, thank you very much, and good night. Thank you very much. The most notable person who wrote hymns to Inanna was Enheduanna, the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, who was appointed head priestess of the temple to Nana, the moon god at Ur. She is the first named author in history, and her hymns are longer, and they'll get their own episode when we get to the Sargonic period. Enheduanna, the first mm -hmm. named author in history. That's just like a lot of firsts. I love it. There's first major, right? First major or large cities, like the first time people wrote. Got the first, like, named author. Like, it's happening. Oh, yeah. And I should clarify, you know, Enheduanna is going to be, you know, a, th a thousand years or so after the current point of the story. It's fair. No, yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's interesting to me that the first named author in history is writing in her second language. Huh. Because Sargon's family has to ingratiate themselves to the existing Sumerian elite, you know, the temples and the cities and the, you know, existing rulers and so on. Wow. And he installs her as the head priestess at the Temple of Nana, which is the city god of Ur known as the moon god. And while she's there, she writes a bunch of hymns, most notably a bunch of hymns to Inanna, who, you know, even though Unug is no longer the most politically powerful city by Sargon's time, you know, again, Unug is the most powerful city during the Uruk period, which is what we're talking about. Right, just a big one. Yeah, it still had that historical prestige and that kind of like place in the legend. So yeah, I mean, the way that you ingratiate yourself to Sumerian society as... 
you know, creating a new role for yourself at the top as an emperor. There's some debate because Sargon calls himself a king, and he, he you know, the word he uses wasn't different from the word that smaller kings used. It's just that the thing he rules is objectively larger. Right, right. Uh, yeah, obviously much more on that later. The thing about the Uruk period is that it kind of exists in the reverse time shadow of Sargon because, you know, it's the first major centralization event before him. Oh, that's super interesting. Oh. <laughs>